This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. Finnish-American Donald Sari grew up exploring the woods of northern Michigan, where he developed a lasting curiosity about the natural world. He found a way to understand and use that curiosity in the field of mathematics. Sari has used math to unravel a number of different mysteries, including how planets move around their suns and whether voting accurately represents the will of the people. The analytical methods he helped develop have given scientists everywhere new tools for understanding how the world works. Donald Sari is a distinguished professor of mathematics and economics at the University of California, Irvine. He was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 2001. My name is Don Sari. I'm uh, a mathematician who's in the economics department and in the mathematics department, and I'm a director of a research institute, the Institute for Mathematical Behavioral Sciences. I was elected into the academy in the year 2001. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is, if you take a look at the map of Michigan, you see uh, looks like two hands. And I'm on the upper hand, the part that sticks up into the Lake Superior. Uh, beautiful, beautiful area, wilderness. And uh, I would say that Houghton, Michigan, uh, was uh, almost like a frontier town. We lived right across the street from the woods, so I spent a lot of time skiing and hunting and uh, climbing down into abandoned copper mines and uh, just plain having a good, good time. Uh, In school, I was in class plays. I uh, involved in everything. What did your parents do? My parents, well, my parents were both idealists. Uh, My mother, uh, she graduated from high school as valedictorian at a very young age. Uh, She became quite involved then in uh, social social activities, activities uh, for women's rights, things that uh, we just accept as granted today, but then, no, no. And uh, so already at the age of 17, uh, people from the local churches were railing against her because of uh, some of the things she was pushing, such as birth control. And my father was uh, an activist also. Uh, He uh, was working to try to... Remember, this was during the Depression when my father and mother were growing up. And uh, my father was fighting so that people wouldn't lose their farms, etc. And uh, so um, all things which were then later enacted by the uh, Roosevelt administration... Uh, the two of them joined together, uh, fell in love, joined together, and uh, moved into the labor movement. And in fact, uh, uh, my father was the one who organized all the copper miners in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, moved on then to, uh, well, he stayed there, but moved on to organize many other places. Very idealistic setting in our house. A lot of discussions about everything. How did you first become interested in science? Oh, wow. As uh, interested in science all the time, as a kid, collecting tadpoles, I remember our house floated with tadpoles. Uh, uh, my uh, mother uh, finding a dead crow in our back <laughs> in our back porch because I was going to take it home and buy a book on taxidermy and <laughs> figure out how to do it. She says, uh, "You know that uh, that's that's going to spoil back there." She's. I told her that I know I was going to put it in the refrigerator, but there was all those baby bottles <laughs> because my younger brother was. There. 
So uh, I was always constantly curious about uh, just about everything in the world. Yeah, science, well, you know, climbing down in the copper mines, interested in uh, how in the world did this happen? Why do we have so much pure copper up there? It's copper up there, it's pure. Uh, so much pure copper up there, uh, whereas not elsewhere. And so uh, just asking questions. And I uh, lived in the library. You know, a local public library. I lived there quite a bit. So much so that the librarians would take off certain books uh, when they would just come in and have them off to the side for me. And so how did you find your way into mathematics? That's an interesting question. I was always very good in mathematics. Uh, but I, at that time, I didn't realize that you could have an exciting career in mathematics. And... Uh, I started off, uh, you know, and when I uh, was in college, I started off in one area, in chemistry, uh, because uh, I had very good grades in there. But to be honest, I just didn't particularly care for the labs. Uh, so then I moved into electrical engineering, but they have a lot of labs too. And I must confess some explosions uh, that took place in the labs. that where I, How they happened, I have no idea. But uh, I was then uh, encouraged to maybe... Uh, Maybe I should go into a non-lab area. And so what I did is I moved into mathematics, uh, which is where I should have been right from the very beginning. I just loved it, and I still do. It's, it's, it's an exciting area. It's, uh, it's an area of, um, that today is the foundations of just about everything we look at. And so by having a true understanding of the thought processes of mathematics and the mathematical sciences, uh, we have an ability now to look at what's going on in the social sciences, what's going on in the physical sciences, what's going on in astronomy, even what goes on in the art world. So it's, uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating subject. You wrote that, uh, that at the start you weren't particularly interested in academics, even though you were a good student. Uh, what, what, can you describe what you meant by that and what changed for you? Well, I wasn't, no, I was always interested in learning. Uh, already in high school, for example, uh, what turned me on a little bit to mathematics is that I like people so much, uh, so much that I would, um, well, shall we say I talked when I'm not supposed to be talking to other people. And so I think, I don't think I set a record for detentions, but I probably came close to it. Uh, doing nothing more than just wanting to talk to people. I enjoy people. And uh, the uh, person in charge of detentions uh, uh, Brotherton, Bill Brotherton, uh, when he heard I was coming, he would come armed. He was the math teacher. He would come armed with all of these math books. And so during detentions, I would be getting de, uh, de facto a, a course in these subjects. So learning and learning these subjects were, you know, turned out to be excellent. But, um, but I like people. And so I thought I would, you know, I, I thought I wanted to go into more of a people-oriented type area. And then I discovered academics really is people-oriented, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, we have our colleagues, we have our students, we have everything else. Plus, we have the challenge, the absolute challenge of science. What do you think appealed to you so much about mathematics in particular? Well, when I uh, started in graduate school, just, uh, just the intellectual ideas of how things get together and how they are so precise. You know, I like to state that um, a maturity of an area is determined by the half-lives of its truths. Yeah, let's take a look at, uh, well, astrophysics. We have a thing called dark matter. Now, what we did is not that long ago, dark matter was thought to be such and such. Well, 
10 years later, no, 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 it's really something else. So the half-life of its truth just tells you, you know, about the maturity of the area. In physics, um, half-life of truth probably is a century, and then we find something new. Uh, in chemistry, much shorter. In mathematics, eternity. The ideas brought forth by uh, uh, the Greeks remain absolutely correct today. And so the half-lives of the truths, uh, uh, the precision, the fact that when you discover something, it's discovered, that was highly appealing. At what point did you say to yourself, I'd like to be a mathematician? I don't know. Uh, I think I just, I don't think I ever really sat down and said, I want to be a mathematician. I viewed mathematics as a way of thinking. And, uh, and even today, I'm, uh, you know, while I am a mathematician, I'm also an economist and I'm also an astronomer. Uh, and uh, so I view it as a way of thinking. And uh, so, uh, see, that's one of the delights of today is that you don't have to uh, state that I'm going to go in this particular area and stay in a very, very narrow area you know, for the rest of your life, a little niche or something like that. Uh, if you have the willingness to explore, to, to use the... Uh, what we do is we try to teach our students how to think, how to be critical thinkers. Uh, if you're a critical thinker and you're curious, you're going to find other areas, so many other types of topics that uh, others haven't really thought about. That's called research. Uh, and, uh, and my way of thinking about these things is through the mathematical sciences. That's my way of thinking. So then, uh, what did you end up focusing on in graduate school as, say, your thesis? Or... Yeah, I was interested. I was one of those who... A kid in the candy shop. Each topic was a new area, and I just found it so fascinating. Each topic, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Until the next quarter when I found a new topic. <laughs> and now that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And so I kept changing topic to topic to topic. And in fact, I was working in an area called functional analysis. When my advisor, he knew I liked to teach. And he said that, Don, you should, um, you should sit in on the course that's being given by Harry Pollard. And he said, you won't like the material, he said, but... He's considered one of our best teachers. So I said, sure. So I sat in, and Harry was talking about the mathematics of astronomy, an area called celestial mechanics. Fell in love with that. It's typical <laughs> of me. And uh, so I started working in the mathematics of astronomy, uh, where I've, uh, to this day, I still continue to work on that. So can you describe what what you started working on when you were working on celestial mechanics? What does that mean? Well, celestial mechanics is um, a guy by the name of Isaac Newton. Remember him? What he did is he had these force laws. And the force laws are what uh, tell us about how different particles, how they're being attracted toward each other. Uh, for example, gravity, the Newton's laws tell us about why this uh, Earth goes around the sun and the various planets go about each other. All sorts of issues. Isaac Newton, what he did is he solved... Well, he invented calculus and these various other areas to solve the two-body problem. If, there's, if our universe consisted of two bodies and only two bodies. And then he tried to solve the three-body problem. What's the three-body problem? Well, let's say the sun, the earth, and the moon. And he couldn't solve it. It's stated that uh, 
it gave him a big headache, and so he went on to different other topics. Well, it's been giving us a headache ever since uh, because we can't solve the three-body problem. We can't solve the ten-body problem, which is nine planets in the sun. We can't solve any of them uh, analytically. We can get numerical computations or numerical predictions, but as far as solving them, uh, no, we haven't. What a challenge. What an absolute challenge to try. I'm not trying to solve them, but can we get information uh, about how the particles behave, how they might collide, etc. My PhD thesis was on that if particles collide, how must they collide? What is the behavior of them? What's a singularity? What that means? When does a solution no longer exist? And uh, then I started working later on what is the evolution of the universe? By that, uh, the idea was is to create mathematical techniques, mathematical tools, so that we can see how that indeed the different uh, stars and planets, etc., form a grouping. We can call that a galaxy. And then we have different groupings, so we have cluster of galaxies. So how do they separate from each other mathematically? And so that's, uh, this is some of the work I did uh, not long after I got my PhD. And then how do these clusters of galaxies separate from one another? And uh, so these were the type of things that I did. I developed the mathematical tools so that we could then uh, create an outline of, uh, of how, if Newton is correct, how the universe must evolve. And uh, then you started working on social sciences. So how did that transition happen? Well, see, I knew nothing about economics or any of these other areas. I'm at Northwestern University, and they, um, uh, I'm teaching a course in functional analysis, which is a beautiful, beautiful course, and a graduate-level course. And so the department asked me to let them know about some of our better graduate students. So I went in and said, so-and-so is our best. Oh, he's not one of ours. Oh. Well, our second best is so-and-so. Oh, you mean he's not a math uh, graduate student either? Well, so-and-so is our third best. You mean she's not in mathematics? So I, I went back to the uh, uh, class the next day, and I talked to those three students. They were seated by each other, and I said, uh, Who are you, and what are you doing here beating up on a poor math majors? Well, they were from economics. And what they were worrying about it's uh, the question of, um, well, it's much like the mathematical astronomy, isn't it? In mathematical astronomy, analytically, we can solve the two-body problem. When you have more and more bodies, we have to create new techniques to find out how the clusters and how they separate from one another. In economics, they could solve problems with two or three people, but a three-million-body problem, like we have in the United States, no. So what they did is they wanted to find, are there new techniques to be able to handle large, large, you know, situations with large number of people? And that is an area of mathematics uh, that they glued onto and it proved very useful called functional analysis. And so the economists were very interested in saying uh, that uh, we can't handle large but finite number of problems, so let's push it to infinity, find out what happens there and take the answers and pull it back to understand whether it works for a large but finite number of uh, people. Uh, notice the creativity, and this happens throughout science. It's you get a problem, can't solve it, so you look for new techniques and often mathematical reasoning and mathematical techniques 
uh, that allow you to get insight and allow you to get solutions and allow you to get, uh, you know, some behavior, uh, understanding behavior. So working with these, uh, so these graduate students, talking with them just turned me on. And so uh, I started getting interested in this subject and found it's fascinating. There were a whole slew of new problems, of new issues that I didn't know existed. And uh, so I've been uh, working both in the physical sciences and the social sciences ever since. And in fact, right now, I'm a, a director of a research institute where we are trying to understand what kind of mathematical type techniques can be developed to understand what goes on in the behavioral sciences, like psychology, etc. Can you give an example of a specific problem in that field? Many of them. Uh, one of them is uh, the story of Adam Smith and the Invisible Hand about if we just leave the markets go, that what happens is it'll converge to an equilibrium, uh, market clearing, supply equals demand. Interesting story. It's a story that has um, formed economic policy of various countries. But the issue then is, is it true? And what happens is uh, we have evidence that, no, not really, sometimes, but not always. And some of the mathematical results that I have developed, along with my colleague Carl Simon, uh, shows that uh, the invisible hand type story usually does not work. And, uh, this, uh, and we're using precisely the tools that the economists develop and use. Another direction where I've, um, I've worked quite a bit is something we do in nursery school. In nursery school, we're trying to decide which, should, which, which one of these uh, juices should we have for our break. Let's have a show of hands. Already starting in nursery school and going all the way through school, we vote. We vote for group decisions. In fact, I think it's safe to say that at any moment, somewhere in the world, there's an election going on. The election may be for who is going to be the president, who's going to be the representative, who's going to be the mayor, what to name your pet dog, uh, what are we going to have, which pizza will we have for lunch, uh, or anything else. So the important question is, does the answer we get fit the facts? And a surprising fact is that you can create incredibly simple, obvious examples where the answer changes as you change how you're going to tally the balance. You can create a very simple example where maybe the candidates are Anne, Barb, and Connie. The plurality vote, vote for one, the one that we always use, you know, the show of hands. Yeah, maybe Anne will be the winner. Then we say, well, why don't we make paired comparisons? Why don't we compare Anne and Barb, Anne and Connie, Connie and Barb, uh, you know, all three possibilities. Now, Barb may be the winner. And then we might try another example. Nobody, everyone's being honest. No one's changing their opinions. They're just voting according to the voting procedure. And then the third one, oh, maybe say vote for two. And now Connie wins. And so uh, what this tells us is the very disturbing fact that an election outcome need not reflect the views of the voters. Instead, a election outcome may reflect which voting method you happen to use. Now that has to be bothering to everyone. This was a topic that was started in 1770 by the French mathematician Jean-Charles de Borda. Uh, his colleague, the Marquis de Condorcet, came up with a different method, 
and uh, there was an intellectual squabble for about uh, 15 years in the French Academy. Uh, Bordas method was adopted by the French Academy of Sciences. And Bordas method is very simple. If you have three candidates, you give two points to your first place candidate, one to your second, and zero to your third. Uh, his method was used uh, by the French Academy for several years until a new member came on board who, um, well, didn't like the method. He wanted to go back to the plurality vote. And uh, his name, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> so uh, they went back there. But this question of how do we choose a voting system? Which voting system most, will most accurately reflect the views of the voters? Uh, it has been a puzzle for over a couple of centuries. Actually, if you go back uh, to the work of Plato, etc., it's for a couple of a millennia. And it's clear that the only way in which this was going to be solved is by use of mathematics, mathematical reasoning. And that's a topic that I undertook. And now we have a complete story about why we get these different election outcomes and why different methods give us different conclusions and uh, the, the whole story about what happens and what can't happen. And uh, so uh, there's still more mysteries, but we have it well in hand now, much, very well in hand. All of that due to mathematical reasoning. So then why does this happen? Lost information. What happens is certain voting systems, uh, let's, let's take a look why the plurality vote. What's the plurality vote? Remember, that's the show of hands. You only vote for your favorite. So now suppose in a local high school, the principal decides that starting tomorrow, all students will be, uh, get their class ranking according to the number of A's they received. Sounds pretty good. You're only voting for your first place candidate, like the plurality vote. Sounds pretty good. Until you start thinking about it and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got all B's. And that other guy over there, he got one A in gym, an F in everything else. And he's going to be ranked ahead of me. <laughs> okay. Well, that's exactly the same flaw with the plurality vote and various other systems. The flaw is that uh, there's available information about what the individuals, the voters, want that we're not using. Uh, and so the question then is, uh, what is the right level of information that we have to uh, incorporate into our voting system so that we're not losing valuable information? And that's a mathematical analysis, and it's a lot of fun to carry it out. How have you balanced your work life and your family life? Oh, family is very important to me. Very, very important to me. How do I balance it? I, uh, I just enjoy family. I enjoy uh, when my daughters were growing up, uh, we would, uh, I would always make sure that every day that we would have, uh, I'd have a lot of time with both of my daughters. I, nursery school, I'd walk them to nursery school on my way to work. And uh, uh, in the summers, we would go to our summer home where uh, uh, I would get up early in the morning. But uh, usually about uh, after lunch, there would be about a three-hour, four-hour period where we would be swimming and canoeing and uh, checking uh, for wildlife uh, and uh, deer tracks and whatever type tracks there might be, and uh, et cetera. And uh, every night, uh, uh, my wife and I, we, have a, we solve all the world's problems uh, for a couple of hours and everything like that. So while my work day is very long, and it's long, because I want it to be long, because I'm intrigued by, by the puzzles. 
family is also very important to me. And uh, if you don't have a balance between those, uh, you're missing a lot. There are a lot of academics who feel a tension there because there is this push to achieve certain things in their work life and then it kind of edges out the time for family life. And it sounds like that was never an issue for you. So no, it never was an issue. How did you do that? Uh, I think it's called love. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, as I stated, you know, I met my wife Lillian and uh, we fell in love and uh, we're still in love and uh, we enjoy each other. I enjoy my, uh, I'm on Skype with, uh, you know, uh, my daughter and her family lives in, one of my daughters and, uh, and her family lives in Finland. And so uh, I'm on Skype with the grandchildren and with my daughter at least once a week and my son-in-law. And uh, my other daughter calls every every week for about an hour. And so, uh, no, we look forward to all of those meetings and conversations. Tension, yeah, there's a tension. Some people, for some people, the tension is to get accolades or something else. For other people, the tension is to understand. And uh, for me, the drive is to understand what's going on. And I involve my wife. Uh, I'm working on concepts. Uh, why, uh, how do we take this idea and that idea and how do we pull them together? My, you know, uh, mathematics, you think of it more like a game of chess. Uh, if this happens and that happens, then this must happen. Uh, so, uh, a lot of times I'm somewhat confused about what I should be doing. And so, in the evening, when we have our evening chat, uh, every evening, uh, I describe, my wife describes what she's done during the day, during her work, etc., and I describe what I've done. Now, my wife is not a mathematician, so I have to learn how to tell stories about what I'm looking at. Uh, we started this already when we were just dating as graduate students. And I remember her saying, that's nonsense. <laughs> okay, Why in the world would you ever want to look at such and such to print the story I gave her? Which meant I had to go back and think through the story. Because you see, concepts transfer. They transfer into other disciplines. And, uh, and you can tell stories about concepts. You can't tell stories about three plus four. But you can tell stories about concepts or things. The concept of addition, that's where I'm combining. I can tell a story about that. I can't tell a story about three plus four. <laughs> that's a detail. And uh, so, uh, uh, so often I say that my wife is the uh, unacknowledged best co-author I have because of all of the results we've had that I've obtained, uh, a lot of it was done through uh, the two of us talking and where I'm trying to find a way. When I find a concept or a story that can get across the basic ideas, it turns out I understand it much better than I did before. What advice would you give to a young person interested in a career in science? Be curious. Be curious. Uh, I think a lot of people give the advice of study this and study that. Uh, I, mine is uh, just do whatever it takes to uh, uh, develop your curiosity. Uh, ask questions. Uh, what, uh, don't accept what people say. I mean, we're, what is research? A lot of research is based on the idea that um, uh, somebody discovers that what we had believed for a long, long time is not true. So be skeptical. Be politely skeptical. 
I, I learned as a uh, as a high school student, one has to be polite. Uh, <laughs> instead of saying, I don't believe that, uh, your instructor is going to give you, um, shall we say, hell. Uh, so what I uh, learned to do is uh, quietly say, I don't believe that. So I think uh, the question is just being curious and talk to people about your curiosity. So curiosity, I think, is the most important thing. Most important thing for whatever you do in life. Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.